1: There's a lot of positive expectations as that door opens and that actor walks in the room. We want you to be the solution to our problem. And you will either step up and fulfill that or not very, very quickly. You know, in the first page, we'll know pretty much if you're close to hitting the target. But, we're, you know, even if you're not, that next actor comes in, We, you know, we're all anxiously want you to be the solution.
0: Welcome back to another one of the... Podcast and having a great time on these podcasts and as I like to do, I like to share a story that might relate to uh, our guest in some way a uh, sort of a six degree of separation and about six months ago, as managers do sometimes if their client lives in a certain area that's on their route to work, they might have a script or something that they might drop off to a client at their house after they drop their kids off to school and and I had a script that I wanted to drop off to Jay Moore in the Palisades. So I'm on my way over there, and I stop in front of his house. And I go through the gate, and I start walking up to his house at like 8.15 in the morning to put a script on his doormat. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, there's a figure of a man walking parallel to me on his driveway towards the front door and I walk a little bit further out of the periphery. I notice that man walking a little further and right before I get to the door, I stop and I look over and that man stops and looks over at me and I say, Jerry. And he says, Barry. I said, what are you doing here? Jerry was Jerry Seinfeld. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm here to drop off a script to my client. Well, who's your client? Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard? I said, no, 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 I don't represent Sugar Ray Leonard. This is Jay Moore's house. I'm, I'm dropping a script on No, this isn't Jay's house. This is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. I said, no, Jerry, this is Jay's house. I, I've worked with him for like 24 years. I know where I live. I said, this is not Jay Moore's house. What are you doing here? This is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. And I just like I, I'm I'm shocked that I'm it's 8 15 in the morning and I'm in front of Jay Morris' house with Jerry Seinfeld, and all of a sudden another luminous figure figure starts walking around the corner towards me. A hulking huge man. And I hear the words Barry? I look at him, I say, Michael? It was Michael Richards. I said, what are you doing here? He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to see Jay Moore. No, you're not. This is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. I said, this is not Sugar Ray Leonard's house. This is Jay Moore's house, and I don't know how many times i got to say it. I'm here to drop off a script. And then Jerry paused, and he looked at Michael, and he says... Michael, I guess this is Jay Morris house. Uh, it must be Jay Morris house because this is his manager and he's, look at how he's dressed. He's wearing his manager pants. We better go to another house.
1: Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this.
0: American Gothic. To me, that was a very, very special, uh, show that didn't get the cred that it deserved and it got canceled. And what was always fascinating to me was created by, of all people, Sean Cassidy. Yeah. Uh, did do run run, right. Sean Cassidy. And he created an incredible drama that was ahead of its time. It was. And it here... would be,
1: it would, you know what? It would be great on TV today. I mean, on a, on a series, on a, a network like FX or it really, um, yeah, but, but what was I wanted to talk
0: to you about that was interesting to me is the fact that here you are. You're, you're essentially a comedy guy. That's all you're doing is comedy. And all of a sudden you get the call, listen, we want you to do this show. It's a dark horror show. Well, I'll
1: tell you how that happened. Was uh, after I did "Married with Children," um, I partnered with Meg Lieberman. I, I left Embassy. Uh, Meg was actually casting "The Facts of Life" as a freelancer. I was on staff uh, on staff at what became Embassy Television after Norman sold it to Coca Cola. Um. And Meg came to me and Meg's background was drama and mine was really comedy. And she said, why don't we leave? um, Why don't you leave embassy and let's become partners and um, and start a business? And I had a lot of heat from that, from uh, Married with Children. She had a lot of heat from doing Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. And Which, by
0: the way, was one of the greatest one of the collaborations great. of any, I mean, uh, it's just incredible. Your office, I always, you know, I have to tell you this, uh, you know, one of the things that you always treated me like I belonged, even when I didn't belong. You always took my calls. You always saw the talent that I brought to you, and I, I always appreciated that. Oh, nice. And that office was amazing.
1: Well, like I said, you know, the, you know, the agents and managers are really the lifeline to us. And if, uh, if we don't listen to you, you you're an access point to the talent. So we need to be open to that. And that's why I, I, you know, I return all my calls. I open every submission. I, you know, I'm very thorough.
0: So we're going to talk about a few more stories sure. that you have. Sure. ER.
1: Now this is the ER this is not ER, the John Wells ER. This is an ER which is based on a um, a play from Chicago and it starred Mary McDonald. Well I think it's important
0: because this is a this started as a play right and you're working on it and it had components of the hospital show. Yeah. So
1: Exactly. So it was almost like um, mash set in an emergency room. So Elliot Gould actually played, he you know, almost reprised his character from Ash, when you think about it. It was sort of the irreverent doctor, irresponsible. And Mary McDonnell played the um, um, by-the-book um, ER doctor. And then uh, Jason Alexander uh, was cast as the hospital administrator, this the update hospital is, administrator. Yeah, now you and know, that's why I got now
0: to know. You, now you know why I want to talk about right. this.
1: So that's how he then he was in that. And then uh George Clooney was cast as kind of the young intern. And then there were a couple people that were in the original Chicago production, Shuko Akune and Bruce um Bruce Wright, is that what yeah. Who um who were cast out of uh the it was I believe it was a Steppenwolf play originally. And they were actually um they actually joined the cast out of um out of that. So, um, that was a, that was a long process and we had known George from the facts of life because he came into the flat facts of life as kind of like the young handyman. Um, and, uh, so we had sort of built a relationship with him from that and then he segued into ER. Uh, before
0: we it's it's amazing how things start and that's why i wanted to have you here on this podcast because you have those stories that are incredible about these people and how they started and how they made the cut and how they worked hard and how they got to a certain level similar to yourself before i get into uh the thing i really want to get into uh recently you know in the past couple of years you got a chance to work with chelsea handler who is like um in my mind you know um uh, moving the needle in ways that uh, very few people have had the chance to move it. And she's an incredible entrepreneur and so well-respected in so many different areas and really a, a, a leader, and not only with uh, for women who are in comedy, but actresses, but in talk and everything. Tell me about that experience working with her and tell me uh, a story or something that you might want to share that... Uh...
1: Well... That was all, you we know, look, she casts a very large shadow. And, you know, this is sort of based on her, her book and on her life. And so it was, it was a real struggle to find someone who, um, was similar to her without sort of being a copycat of her. And,
0: but this is where things all tie together because, you also were the casting director on that seventies show. Right. And this is where what's interesting is your relationships throughout time, like the, like the Alexander thing, they come back right. and it's just a, it's just a circle of life in these things. So talk about that. Cause you haven't talked about really, I, I interrupted you, right. but I want you to talk about how Chelsea's role was cast.
1: Well, you know, we saw every, um, every actress that was sort of in the in the age range so you know to try to find someone who was not doing um an imp- impression of Chelsea Handler or sort of made the part her own but was sort of you know uncensored and unflappable and you know out there and it was a very you know it was a very big uh it was a very difficult task to find that. So we'd seen all these people. And uh, by the way, Tom Werner was the executive producer of that show. And so I said to him, I think I want to bring in Laura Prepon to read. And and Tom Werner was the executive producer of that 70s show. And he said, I really don't think that Laura is right for this. I, you know, she, she had just, well, obviously I knew her from that 70s show, but I worked on a short-lived NBC series called Love Bites that Cindy Chupac had produced. And Laura had done a guest shot on the show for us. And really, um, it, she was extraordinary in the guest shot. And it hadn't aired yet, but I, you know, I knew that she was capable of doing it, that she had sort of matured in that way. And I said, I really want to bring her in. And we brought her in and, She just was it. She was it. She, you know, she is kind of a Jersey girl. She's, you know, uncensored. She had, you know, she obviously grew up in comedy, so she knew that. And it was just a a great fit. Cool. And having a read for Chelsea was great because Chelsea saw her and just loved her.
0: That's, uh, that's a great story. And let's talk about, uh, in my mind, uh, one. But I should
1: also say in, in, in that show, Lauren Lapkus, who was in it, who played a roommate, literally had no credit, credits at all. I mean, I think she'd done a couple little internet shorts. Um, it may, I think she did like a sketch on Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, and that's someone, as soon as I saw her face on the submission, I'm like, that's someone I have to meet. And she just came in and she was just amazing. And I'm so glad she's doing very well for herself now. But that's someone that we took a shot with it was her first series role. And I was really proud to be able to sort of put that one forward.
0: So let's talk about the, uh, one of the greatest shows in the history of uh, television Seinfeld. And, uh, I'm sure you have a number of stories, but, uh, you know, to be on the ground floor and to be with uh, Jerry and Larry as they were developing it and being in those sessions with them. Uh, if you could pull upon, you know, one or two stories that are just, will, you know, nobody knows that will just blow people away uh, of the process. What do you, what, what do you think you could share with us?
1: Sure. Well, I would say that the most interesting thing was, It was sort of just a little show. It, you know, even though Jerry was attached to it and he was a very well-known comedian, he wasn't exactly a household name. And Larry had certainly not, um, sorry, um, you know, the American public didn't really know Larry. um, um, It was definitely an under the radar show. And it actually did not come out of the comedy development department at NBC. It actually came out of the late night department. Um, so it came out of a different budget. Rick Ludwin. Exactly. Rick Ludwin was a big fan of Jerry's and Larry's and really sort of put forward, I think it came out of his budget. And so it really did not come out of the sort of usual development process. That said, as a result, it It um, was more of an experiment, I would say, than something that, you know, was developed as a pilot under Warren Littlefield, you know, and his comedy development team. And it came in sort of through the back door.
0: Which you can imagine, you know, you have the president and all the people hired to make decisions on half hour television and some guy in late night. Uh, submit something, you can imagine the navigation, the politics to get something like that through and on the air.
1: Yeah, well, I think, honestly, you know, it was, like I said, it was, it was not a show that anyone sort of expected to work in any way. So, you know, I thought it was funny and the people around me thought it was funny, but I think all of us maybe felt like, oh, this is so kind of urban. Like, if you're not a Jew from New York, you're just not going to sort of relate to it. You're not going to get it. So anyway, we started the casting process and obviously Jerry was attached to it, there was no Elaine in the pilot at all. There was actually a, um, um, a waitress in the coffee shop named Meg, who was in the original pilot. And then it was after the pilot, they decided to add in, um, a female regular Elaine. um, and we started the casting process and um, I obviously knew Jason from ER and he went on tape in New York and that was it I mean he just blew it out of the park even on tape it was real you know um,
0: VHS tape
1: yeah exactly that's exactly right I think it was actually three quarter inch. Day <laughs> the time, um, the other front runner for the role was Larry Miller, who was you know a very very close friend of uh, Jerry's, and um, and it boiled down to the two of them, and I think that Larry was really the front runner for the role. Um, in Jerry's mind and Jason was really the front runner in um, Larry's mind. And we both had them come out, and they both tested. We actually tested the actors. We usually would do it at NBC, in the head of casting's office. Um, but they were, I believe they were in meetings. There was some sort of a, a meeting in Century City, like the Century Plaza. So we actually had the test at the Century Plaza Hotel in like um you know a little conference room And Warren Littlefield literally came in to see the test and then um and then went back to whatever business he was doing so we flew in um Jason and then Larry tested and it was very clear that Jason was the guy
0: what about Michael Richards
1: well it's interesting um the original concept for that character was this, it was sort of a a, sh- a shut-in. He was this sort of shuffling um, neighbor from next door who was always in his bathrobe, never left the building. Um, and there was one actor who read who was exactly that, and he was great.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BerryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it.
1: And then Michael Richards came in, and I had actually met Michael. Um, and although he had worked with Larry David on uh, Fridays, um, I had brought him in independently because he, Michael, had come in to read for me for the Ed O'Neill part, Married with Children. He was uh, um, at the time Michael was on a short-lived series. We played like this wacky gardener, and I don't remember some. I can't remember the name of the series, but um that had just been canceled. So he came in and read for Married with Children. He was not right for that, but I remembered him. And so he came in and read for uh Kramer, but his energy was completely different. I mean, he would literally like explode through the door and his take on it was completely different. And um we tested both actors for the network and you just could not not go with Michael because you never knew what he was going to do. It was just that it's that uniqueness that I was talking about.
0: Yeah. It all yeah. comes full circle. Yeah. So, uh, it's the final thing we're going to talk about, which is basically, uh, your holy shit moments okay. of your life and your career here. So tell me what your proudest professional moment is in your illustrious career.
1: Um. Well, I th- I think it's hard not to say that Seinfeld and being involved in all the seasons of that show was my most my most proudest moments. And the, I think what I enjoyed the most about it was finding those actors that have sort of gone on to become sort of icons. Um, whether it be you know the Soup Nazi. The you know the the parade of girlfriends that sort of came through um, those doors, all of them have gone off and done very well for themselves. The people who did little one line roles on the show, who it was really sort of their first um, television guest star, and they've all kind of gone on to you know do you know have a lot of success. Um, that was. You know, that, that's what I love to see. You know, that's, those are my favorite moments. Not casting the guy who's already the star, but really helping to grow actors that have all that potential and sort of helping them launch their careers. That's what I, that's what I really enjoy. And I think that's, um, one of the things I'm most proud of.
0: What's your biggest disappointment in professionally?
1: I think my biggest disappointment was, you know, I was head of casting for NBC Universal for almost 10 years.
0: 10 years, yeah. And and it should be noted that when you were there, you worked on The Office, 30 Rock, Heroes, My Name Is Earl, Friday Night Lights, Southland, you were overseeing the casting for that, so.
1: Right. I and I really enjoyed the experience, but I think what I didn't enjoy was uh or what I was disappointed by, I should say It's the fact that when you're in one of those jobs, it becomes less creative and a lot more about sort of keeping the trains running on time. And also the fact that, you know, when I was there, I started certain um, uh, comedy development projects there. I started this one in New York called PSNBC, which was basically a performance space in New York. Which groomed a lot of young comedians. You
0: also worked on the diversity yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. You? I was head of. Then uh, you, I was didn't in you charge start of that. Then uh, you start the showcases yeah, for that. Yeah,
1: exactly. But um, for example, out of New York, and I would have every spring, all the execs would come to New York, and uh, for upfronts, and I would set aside a night where I would um, give a showcase of the best actors and comedians to come out of New York and I would have them all perform for an hour. It was an hour. And it was very tough to get the executives to, to go to the showcase. And I literally had to twist their arms to get them there. And at those showcases were Ed Helms, Aziz Ansari. Uh, I mean, it was a cavalcade, John Hodgman, a cavalcade of incredibly talented people who they would see and then go, yeah they're, yeah, they're funny, but you know, I don't What are we going to do with them? <laughs> and it was, it was, there is a, a, a mentality at the networks that how, you know, are they really that good if the other networks aren't chasing them? They just sort of didn't really understand that, that, um, they were getting first crack at these people. And oh you know, you know how it is in the in this business sometimes. It all boils down to competitive situations. You're, you know, you're shopping at the ABC and CBS and NBC. So there's uh, you know, there's a uh um a competitive, you know, they're stepping up because ABC's stepping up or Fox is stepping up. Um and so it was a lot of these actors and by the way, ended up on NBC, and I'm very happy about that. But um It was disappointing that they didn't have the vision to, you know, make these holding deals with these these actors and then, you know, um, proactively develop for them and cast them. Even when I made talent-holding people, talent-holding deals for some of these comedians or actors, they really sort of sat on the sidelines – And the um, network didn't really uh, exploit exploit them and sort of take advantage of their skill sets. I'd say that's one of my biggest disappointments. But you know what? That's just the name of the game. And I think that's why some of the networks are just suffering, lost their way.
0: Now, true serum in your veins now here. Tell me an actor who you saw, they came into your office and they auditioned for you. And literally, you thought to yourself when they left... Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Don't quit your fucking day job. And I will never bring that actor in again. They were so horrible. And then they went on to be a big star. Oh, boy. And then uh, conversely, somebody who you saw that you thought was incredibly talented and you believed in so much and you brought them to the network and they were just like, no I don't care they are never getting this job and then they went on to do things oh,
1: I do have well I would say um someone that I was passionate about was one of my pilot seasons at NBC uh Amy Adams who's now a big movie star tested in about for about three or four of our pilots and never booked it and um the The president of the network at the time said... Who was? The president of the network <laughs> at the time said, You know what? You know what? It's enough with Amy Adams. Let's not bring her in again.
0: <laughs> and so tell me somebody who you thought was miserable, who became... so you, Later on you <laughs> saw them in huge films Boy, and television.
1: I... I'm trying to Somebody you just that.
0: didn't get it.
1: Someone I just didn't get. You just
0: didn't get it. You were anything. like, this person doesn't have what it takes, and they ended up becoming a big star.
1: I don't know. I'm not coming up with anything. I will, I'll tell you another story, though. Someone I, I was very passionate about was Steve Carell. I knew him from Second City in Chicago. And I cast him when I was an independent as a series regular in the Dana Carvey show there was a comedy they were casting for the Zucker brothers called HUD, which stood for the housing and urban development. It was basically a, you know, inspector Clouseau or get smart type of, um, comedy about a guy who who is a secret agent whose cover is he works for HUD. And, um, and Steve Carell, I put up for the job, and he ended up booking that. And he was incredible. And the, the pilot didn't go, and I think they regretted not doing it. I mean, it was just incredibly funny, but at the time, they just didn't feel they had a place for it. But then we started to do the Julie Wee-Dreyfus short-lived series, which was called um, Watching Ellie. And we cast uh, Steve Carell in it as the neighbor. And then, of course, he came in and uh, booked the lead in the office.
0: Alright, so, you know, there's a lot of people listening, a lot of actors and actresses listening, a lot of comedians You want to get to the next level, a lot of uh, people coming out of acting school, theater programs. I want to know what advice you have for a young actor who has no credits, and how do they get to the point where they catch your attention they get to the next level. What does somebody have to do to make their mark on you and other people in your business to get to the next level? What does somebody have to do when they go in and they audition and then they audition again for the producers and then for the studio and the, and the network, how do they take their careers to the level that you've taken your career?
1: Well, I'll give two pieces of advice for that new actor, that new comedian. Don't put yourself out there until you're ready because a bad impression is much longer lasting than no impression at all. And if you've come in and auditioned for me and you're not prepared, you're, um, not professional, you clearly don't have a handle on the character. Um, you have clearly not prepared the material and blow it in the room. That is longer lasting, that memory, than if I had no experience with you at all. And when your agent pitches the next time and go, you know what? They've read for me once or twice and they're just not, they're not capable. They're not ready. You know, um, and, and I remember that. Not that I haven't given actors second chances, but then when they come in a second time and they do it again, that's it. You know, I'll, I would rather not see them. I don't care who their agent is. And I'd rather see a new young actor um, that I have no experience of and take a shot on them. So that's the most important thing. If you're a stand-up, you know, make sure you've got more than two good minutes of material or eight minutes of material. If you're a standup who wants to transition into acting, make sure you do some classes. I, you know, one of, one of my big, um, beefs and I've had these conversations with you is yes, yes, you have with a standup comic specifically who has a lot of heat on them is developing something at the network. And I've called you and said, Barry, I want him to come in and read for my pilot, or I want him to come in and read for this guest shot. It's a great guest shot. And you know what I always say. He said no.
0: Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it, because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I say no. Yeah. The reason why I say no is because I don't, if they're doing something and they're already there and they already got the money coming, he just dropped the coaster for the (laughs) the eighth time. This is fantastic. He's finally just put (laughs) his drink down (laughs) the floor. So the thing is, I feel like if somebody gets the gig and they have a gig already, if they go in and read for you, you're a very influential person. So I've already gotten to the point where I've leapfrogged over the process where they don't have to prove themselves. I've got them the gig. They're there. They're about to go. And if they come in and read for you and they have a bad read you're a very powerful person they could everybody they pull the rug on everything so i would rather I understand. we've had arguments Look, about I, that yeah
1: we have but you know and i understand your point of view and i wouldn't blame you but you know these these young guys need the experience in the room auditioning and doing these guest shots they need to get this stuff under their belt So they become better actors and they're not going to do that if you insulate them and isolate them. And that's why I'm always very passionate about the fact, get them in the room. And, and by the way, I'm very supportive with these actors, you know, and I'll say, look, have them come in, read for me. If it's not good, I won't share the material. I'm not going to share it with my producers, but let's see if they're capable. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, A lot of, you know, this, you know, this comic is offer only, you know, um, we're not, we're not going to put them up there. You have to make them an offer. Um, and I understand why agents and managers do that, but at the same time, I try to convince them, look, let them go through the process. They'll get some experience. Maybe they won't book the job, but better that we go through the process. And if they don't book better, it happen. In the shadows, then have them go to the table read. You make an offer, they go to the table read, and they are summarily dismissed after the table. And it ends up on Deadline Hollywood, you know, for everyone to see. That's not good for anyone. It's not good for the talent. Um, And it's hard to recover from that. So, look, I understand it's your job to protect your talent and, you know, do what's right for them. But it's my job to make sure that actor is the right fit. And if they have the body of work, I will fall my sword for that actor. You know, if a producer, producer doesn't want to see it, I work with plenty of producers and I still do who go, I got to see them read. If they do not read, there's no way I can cast them. And I say, look, look, I have a reel for you. Look at their body of work, you know, sit down with them in the room and have a meeting. I mean, I mean, it's, it's important, you know, in, I, if I'm passionate about someone, I will, I will communicate that to my producers and try to get them there. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but, um, but it's a, I think it's important to the process. So, you know, a lot of times I'll say, look, get the actor to come in for a meeting. We, we did it together on Jay and he booked that pilot, you know, um, um, that's and
0: right. You guys wanted him. I to- think
1: 3 times I came to you knocking on your door yeah. to try to get him to come into the room. Finally, we got him to come in for the meeting and it was it was a love fest and then we went to the next step and he and he booked the role and he was great in it. Um but you know, sometimes you have to jump through that hoop and I think that it's important on both ends. You know, like you said, it's a marriage that takes place maybe with four times five minutes each. And it's, you know, it's all about the chemistry. With with Jay, it was really, it was all about the chemistry between him and the other guy. With Jay
0: Moore yeah. and the other actor, yeah. Yeah,
1: in that pilot. It was, it, it really sort of lived and died. And by the way, it was a great pilot. It was just one that TV Land just decided they didn't want to go with, you know, male. You know, they have a female audience. Why Why do something that's very male? But it was a great pilot. It was really funny. And, uh, you know, casting is always hard. It's really hard. I've never, um, I've never had an experience that has been sort of simple. Or if it has been, it is a bust.
0: Got it. And finally, for people in your profession, that want to get started, that want to make their mark, that want to go up through the ranks and make a difference like you have. People who want to be casting directors, they want to get involved. They want to move the needle. What's your advice for them?
1: I think you need to learn the talent pool. That's the most important thing. You need to, you need to love actors. You need to respect them and you need to, um, take risks. And be supportive of them and um and be out there. There are a lot of casting directors that sort of insulate themselves from actors, and I'm I'm not one of those. I mean, I don't like go out and party and socialize with actors, but I see everything. Or if I don't, I have, you know, people in my office that see everything. There's just so much right now. It's just impossible to see everything. So I rely on a lot of other people to um say, Hey, I saw so-and-so in this small play, or I saw this person on YouTube, or I saw this, you know, I'm, I'm going to VidCon down at, at Anaheim to see the YouTube stars. Cause a lot of people are, you know, a lot of great writers and a lot of great talent are just sort of coming out of that world. Um I think that's sort of the next frontier and it's sort of, that's blown the doors off of, you know, Not that we're the gatekeepers, but it's sort of, you know, they've done an end run. They're producing their own material. And so um, they're doing end run around the casting directors and the agents and the managers. They're creating their own material and creating their own opportunities for 50 bucks and uh, aggregating their own audiences, their own fan bases. And so as a casting director, I need to be aware of, you know, People that are coming out of that world, continuing to come out of the stand-up comedy world, theater, um, uh, the reality world, sports, bloggers, it's all, you know, it's a whole new frontier. Um, And I would say you just have to be, you know, as an actor, you have to be passionate about your work and you have to go in the room convinced that you, you know, we have a problem casting directors. Um, every actor that comes into the room, we want to solve the problem that we have, and that is we don't have the we don't have the right actor for the role. So every time, you know, I don't care if there are fifty actors sitting out in the waiting room with you, um, you know, actors can sit out and go, all right, number twenty-five coming in, you know, it, it, the 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 casting director and the producer not sitting there, you know hunched over going, all right, what do you got for me next? You know, let's get through this. There's a lot of positive expectations as that door opens and that actor walks in the room. We want you to be the solution to our problem. And you will either step up and fulfill that or not very, very quickly. You know, in the first page, we'll know pretty much if you're close to hitting the target. But we're, you know, even if you're not, That next actor comes in, we, you know, we're all anxiously want you to be the solution because casting is a very long, arduous process and no one wants to do it. So you do have that leg up as an actor when you walked into that audition room.
0: Well, uh, you certainly made a difference here today, Mark, and I'm so grateful for you coming. Our audience is going to be, uh, so excited about this because you've shown, an area of the business you pull the curtain back and you really really explain so much and all the memories and you're just in another league in your first class and i'm well, so you. grateful that you came here today and thank you so much for doing the podcast i Thanks appreciate for inviting it. me oh it was That's awesome fun. listen everybody if you like the show today tell all your friends and uh if you didn't like the show today tell all your friends <laughs> Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob, he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons and he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrykatz.com, to the merch page, and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrykatz.com, the merch page, Pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I've partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind, workshop, or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins. The best in the business is actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session. BarryKBB.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: You get all the money drop that Fancy car, All the people Love you Cause you're going For Life is for the dreamers stay they have All to gain It's never quite Over So it all feels
0: Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment
1: and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.